We're continuing in Revelation, week six of our Revelation series. And this morning, our task is to tackle two chapters, chapters four and five. So if you have your Bibles, your phone, your iPad, you can kind of get there a while. But I want to begin with a question. Have you ever looked at something and saw nothing but utter chaos? You're not quite sure how it all fits together. Um, I was reminded of that yesterday. I was flipping through the stations. Eagles don't play till today. Phillies didn't play. Penn State didn't come on till 3.30. Flipping through the stations, and I found a rugby match. Talk about chaos. They're laying on each other. They're not allowed to tackle with their heads. The ball goes backwards rather than forwards. Utter chaos. The announcer seemed to know what was going on, though, in the midst of this. I watched for a few minutes until I had too much and got rid of that. But maybe the best place to see chaos is if you go to an airport and watch the planes. First of all, there's chaos in the airport when you're trying to get through security to the, to the gate. And then you look out the window and absolute chaos, right? Planes going this way, that way, facing different directions on the runway. You get on the plane, you have to wait. You're not sure why. The pilot comes on. He doesn't know why. Then you look up in the sky. Planes are everywhere. They're lined up over here. They're flying over there. Absolute chaos until you walk in the control tower. All of a sudden from the control tower, it's choreography. The, somebody's telling the planes on the ground how to move, where to get in line, what runway to go and wait on. Somebody in the, in the control tower speaking to the planes that are flying, get behind this person, no, you're too soon, you have to circle before you come down. Choreography from the control tower, chaos on the ground. That perspective is kind of what Revelation 4 and 5 is about. You ever look around at our world, particularly these days, turn on the news, absolute chaos, right? You wonder what's going on, you shake your head, is, does anybody know what's going on? Is evil going to win? What is this? Well, we're going to see from Revelation 4 and 5, choreography, God's got this. And remember the context Jesus is dictating letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And those churches are experiencing persecution and suffering, difficulty, economic struggles, lots of difficulties. And in a sense, what do they need? They need exactly what Jesus gives them. They need to lift their eyes above the chaos, take a tour of the throne room, take a tour of the control tower. And it may not fix all the chaos today, but it reminds us who's in control and how it all works. So if you have your Bibles, let's read a few verses from Revelation 4. We'll talk about that for a little bit when we look at the Creator. Then we'll shift gears and look at the drama that takes place in Revelation 5. So at the beginning of Revelation 4, John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. 
In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So when Jesus invites John to the throne room, into the control tower, what does he first of all see? He first of all sees a throne. He's touring the throne room, and he sees a throne. And you know, I, one of our goals for the series is we're not going to work through all the details because there's lots of disagreement. We're all going to emphasize the main theme. Here's the main theme. And really, all, the point of this message, all you really need to know, in heaven, there's a throne. And that throne is above all other thrones. And that throne in heaven is occupied. It's occupied today. Choreography, not chaos. There's a throne, and the throne is occupied. As we worship the Creator, that's what chapter 4 is. We see a throne, and the throne is occupied. Well, notice there are some... uh, stones that are there. Did you read those? Like carnelian, jasper, ruby, some of those. Now, it's pretty tough to make a one-to-one correspondence between the stones, and I'm not going to try to do that. Here's the point with some of the stones. Here's what I would say. The stones are all beautiful. Some of you ladies may have some on your hand, right? Stones are beautiful. Not just that, stones are glorious, right? There's a glory to them that you really can't get with many other things. They're also valuable. There's a lot of wealth. Oh, and here's something else. Maybe there's a little bit of an intimacy. Now, here's a little conjecture, right? This is not in the text. This is a Charles extrapolation for what that's worth, right? Next to nothing. Two of the stones that are mentioned, Jasper and Carnelian, right? Or Ruby, right? Whatever. It just so happens, just so happens, maybe, that, that, that those stones are the first one mentioned and the last one mentioned on the high priest's ble- breastplate that, is, that Moses was told to, dis- to create, right, to manufacture in Exodus 28. Now, if you remember what the stones were on the breastplate, the stones were to signify the names of God's people, right, the tribes. And so the high priest had 12 stones on the breastplate, and then the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies. And in a sense, the high priest represents all of the people of God as he comes before the throne. And what are we reminded of here? Maybe, and those stones are before God. God remembers his people. Now, here's my hunch. If there are any grandparents in the room, and you need to, you need to prove if I'm wrong in this. Uh, let me, how many grandparents in the room? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Uh, if you don't have this, you stop me on the way out. How many of you grandparents have pictures of your grandkids on your phone? Oh, yeah, about the same number to raise your hand before. And if you're a parent, you have kids. But isn't it amazing? Not just when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, he's got pictures representations, reminders of God's people. And here at the end of the story, right, John's invited into the throne room, into the control tower, and the stones are blazing. You know what's more important than you and I having God in our hearts? It's more important that he has us in his heart. And before the throne, it's not just beauty, 
not just glory, not just wealth and value, intimacy. There's an intimacy with the stones. And then there are peals of thunder and lightning. That reminds us of Sinai, right? The glory of God. And people are told, don't come too near the mountain. And there's concentric circles around the throne. And you notice when, when the person mentions sitting on the throne, you, you don't get a description of what he looks like. It's always that way. Because people can't see God and survive, right? And so the closer you get to the one seated on the throne, the less precise the picture's getting. So there's a throne. That's what you need to know. There are stones. There are peals of thunder. And then we meet some really weird guys. Do you notice that? There are 24 elders that are kind of around the throne, and there's a lot of debate. I'll give you the two main interpretations. Uh, the one interpretation is, right, it's kind of a 12 by 12 kind of matrix, right? 12 tribes of the Old Testament, God's people represented 12, 12 apostles, God's people from the New Testament, 12 and 12, 24. See how you do that math? 12. And so do the elders represent all of God's people? Um, I, I, I don't think so, but, but, but that's a really good guess, right? It kind of makes sense. It seems like that the elders are angels. It's more likely that they're angels, but just like the churches had an angel that represented each of the churches. So some, we don't know much about the angelic world. Somehow these angels are representing all of the people of God. And later in chapter five, you're going to see the elders are presenting the prayers of the saints. The elders aren't praying the prayers of the saints. They're presenting them, representatives. Then we meet the four uh, creatures. Everybody clear on the creatures? With your eyes all over? You got that, right? We'll just move on. Uh, yeah, we're not sure what the creatures are either. We do know that it's similar to Ezekiel 1 and it's similar to Isaiah 6. And the creatures, they have eyes all over. Eyes mean seeing, right? So they're seeing. They're much more observant. They have more data. They're taking in more, much more information than we are. With six wings, just like, the, just like the seraphim, cherubim in Isaiah chapter 6, they're worshiping God. And so the point is, there's a throne it's a throne of brilliance. It's a throne of power. It's a throne of intimacy. And then there's peals of thunder because the presence of God. Oh, yeah, and then there's a rainbow. Do you notice the rainbow? Oh, now, here's a question. You can yell out your answers. What does the rainbow remind, or who does the rainbow remind you of? Noah. Noah. Very good. You're good at that, right? What does Noah remind us of? The perfect balance between justice and mercy. God saves and God judges. And what are we going to see starting next week in chapter 6 as the seals begin to be broken? What are we seeing? Justice and mercy. God perfectly balances them. And the sign of the rainbow reminds us, yeah, justice is coming, but not just justice, mercy and grace are coming. There's no one that deserves mercy and grace. That, that would break even what the definition means but justice married to mercy. Mercy married to justice. God threads that needle perfectly. And we're reminded of that as we tour the throne room. But don't miss the forest for the trees. It's real easy in Revelation to dive in and spend so much time, you know, dissecting the trees and looking at every leaf on the tree that you miss the forest. What's the forest? Question. What's everybody and everything doing in Revelation? They're worshiping. Everyone. Everything and everybody. The 24 elders are worshiping. The four creatures are worshiping. 
everything in heaven. So if the creatures are representing all creation, as they seem to be, right, the angelic representatives, and the 24 elders representing all of God's people, everybody's worshiping. And so let's talk about worship for a couple minutes. Do you realize that human beings were made to be worshiping beings? And I would venture uh, to say, and there's lots of evidence for this, everybody worships. I didn't say everybody worships God, I didn't say everybody worships Jesus, but everybody worships. In fact, if you want to see um, worship in play, look at a fanatic Phillies fan in the game, right? In a sense, that's worship, right? What is worship? Well, the word just means worth-ship. You're ascribing worth. And how does that take place? Well, if you're worshiping something, you give your time. I'd like to sit and watch the game at home. I can't imagine sitting in that traffic before and after, right? I'm not willing to pay the price, but lots of people are. They go online and spend exorbitant sums of money. Time, money, oh yeah. And they can't get enough, right? And so after the game... You've got to turn on WIP or listen to all the replays because you've got to watch it again. And during the week, you listen to people calling and talking about it. You can't get enough, right? You remember, you, you spend time, you spend money, you spend your energy. All of those things come together. You're ascribing worth and you're not even on the team. What's everybody do and everything do in the throne room? Everybody. Everything worships. And they worship the one who's in the center, seated on the throne, in the middle of the control tower. And how do they worship? It's kind of interesting. So everybody worships. Worship is worship. And worship changes everything. What are, the, what are those angels doing around the throne? What do they do with their crowns or with their hats? What are they doing with their hats? Well, they're casting them before the one who's seated on the throne. Now, why do you think I say it changes everything? Now, isn't it true? As we go through life, our main motive, right? We can be on, we're in church, right? You're supposed to tell the truth. Our main motive in going through life is to accumulate crowns and put them on our heads. Isn't that right? We do it when we go to school to get good grades. We do it when we get out to get a good job. We do it to, make, to get a promotion and make more money. We do it to have early retirement and put money. We spend life trying to accumulate crowns and put them on our heads. Worship changes everything because what are they doing? They're taking off their crowns in humility and submission to the creator. They put their lives before the one in the center. So... How can we make our lives, make our days a little more, a little more control tower oriented? Well, how can you build some things into your life to remind yourself of what Revelation 4 is about? To remind yourself when the world seems to be in chaos. When you're living with anxiety and fear, discouragement, not sure what tomorrow holds, you watch the news and you're flabbergasted, wondering where this whole world is going, remind yourself there's a throne, a throne above all the other thrones, and that throne's occupied. It may look like chaos from our perspective, but remember, Revelation is a revealing and uncovering, an uncovering of the control tower. 
God's got this. And we, if we're wise, will take our lives and all the things that we've accumulated by his grace and in humility and submission, lay our lives before him and say, you know a whole lot better than we do. And so we're not sure what this afternoon holds, let alone tomorrow, this week, or forever. But Lord, you do. And so like those beings in chapter 4, those reminders should should share with us and remind us there's a throne and our responsibility is to worship, ascribe ultimate worth to the one there and take the things that by God's grace we've accumulated and in humility and surrender, put them into play for him to use how he wants. Well, that's kind of chapter four. Some of you are discouraged. We didn't look at too many details. Uh, Send me, well, I was going to say send me an email, but don't. Uh, You can if you want. Well, let's jump over to chapter five. Now, chapter five is the drama that now happens in the throne room. So the context, right, the the backdrop is set in chapter 4. That's the throne room. Those are the players in the throne room. Chapter 5 now gives us the drama, and we're introduced not to the creator. He's part of what's in chapter 4. Now we're introduced to the redeemer. And the drama, in some ways, is stranger than the context. So let's read, beginning of verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, right, that's God, the one who sat, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Remember, like seven, the perfect number, right? Can't get any more. So even though, a little highlight here, even though those creatures are covered with eyes, the one we're going to meet now has seven eyes. Seven is more than being covered with eyes, right? Not if you count them. But seven is complete, perfect, right? So that, that writing on seven, and there's seven seals, the perfect seal. Nobody can open this sucker. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept, this is John, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So the lion's going to do it. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns. Horns are power, right? Perfect power, omnipotence. And seven eyes, perfect seeing, omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. A lot of the words that we sing in choruses and hymns come from these two chapters, right? That chapter of worship, chapters of worship and praise. All right, so what's going on in the drama? Well, let's walk through it with a series of S's, right? First of all, there's a scroll. So what the heck is this scroll, right? And it's got seven seals on it, which means it's perfectly sealed. And, and, and the angel says, well, who can open a scroll? And nobody can open a scroll. Nobody on the earth, above the earth, under the earth. That means nobody, right? No one anywhere can open the scroll. And then, well, what exactly is the scroll? Well, if you read the rest of Revelation and you keep that context, it's pretty clear that the contents of the scroll is the unrolling of God's plan. It's the unrolling of justice and grace. It's the unrolling of judgment and mercy. It's the unrolling of God's plan. Another way to look at it, unrolling the scroll unrolls and fulfills all of God's promises. Now, a number of God's promises are fulfilled. A lot of them are kind of partially fulfilled, and a bunch of them aren't fulfilled yet. Well, when you unroll, the the scroll contains all of God's promises. God's plan is now completed. The scroll contains the vindication of God's people, the victory of God. That's what the scroll is, right? So the scroll is God's plan. Well, why is John weeping? Well, it kind of makes sense then, because God's plan will not be unrolled. Justice will not prevail. Mercy will not be extended. God's promises will not be fulfilled. Redemption will not be completed. Victory will not occur. So John says, oh my goodness, it goes on like this forever, or evil wins? This is terrible. If we would catch a glimpse of what it was like tonight, you and I would weep too. John's weeping uncontrollably, right? And an elder approaches and says, John, suck it up. Somebody can open the scroll. And you know what? He's in the control tower. He's here. He's in the throne room, and he's able to open the scroll. So John says, okay, okay, where is he? And the elder even says, the lion of the tribe of, that makes sense, right? Lion, king of the beast. Lion, in your mind, before you know what John sees, you can picture this lion, right? Claws extracted, walking up to the scroll and slicing open the seals, If the lion can do it, yes, the lion, the root of David, right? The promised Messiah, the one like David, the ultimate David, he's going to do it. And he's the lion, right? All the way back in Genesis, from the tribe of Judah, the Messiah will come. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, he's going to do it. John says, yes. And he turns around and sees a lamb. But, But not just a lamb. A lamb that had been killed. A lamb that had been sacrificed. A lamb that had been slain. A lamb, if you would, with blood on its neck because its neck had been sliced and the lamb had died. But the lamb isn't lying in a heap, the lamb's alive. The lamb that was slain is alive. 
So John told the lion, seize the lamb. And what happens? The lamb approaches the throne. You know, if you and I were there, there'd be chills on our bodies and the hair would stand up on our neck as the lamb that had been sacrificed makes his way through the concentric circles and approaches the throne. The lamb goes all the way up to the throne. He reaches and takes the scroll. No objection from God. In my mind, God hands him the scroll. And then we read, the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And what does that mean? To unroll God's redemptive plan. The lamb is worthy to fulfill all of God's promises. The lamb is worthy to bring in God's victory. The lamb is worthy to usher in perfect justice mingled with mercy. The lamb brings vindication, not only for himself, but all of his people. The lamb can do it. And what do we find starting in the next chapter six, which we'll look at next week? We then see the seal being, the seals being broken and the scroll beginning to be unrolled. So there's a scroll and there's a search. And it, isn't it amazing that the victory of God is not accomplished through military prowess or force? The victory of God is accomplished through the sacrifice of his son. Now, you know, John's giving us vision and imagery, right? You, we can't take all of this literal, but he's giving us the pictures of what's going on. And the pictures are connecting us to images and pictures from the Old Testament. And we're seeing this right before our eyes. So we got a scroll, we have a search, we have a Savior. Now, here's another Charles conjecture for what it's worth, right? The other one wasn't worth much, this may be worth less. Whenever I read Revelation 5, I can't help but imagine that Revelation 5, right? Remember, it, he called John, come up here. So John is looking from the control tower perspective. He's not looking from the chaotic earthly perspective. This is how we look from, right? And John was there on Pam. He said, no, come on up here. So John now is catching the vision from heaven's perspective. And what's going, well, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, at the end of a couple of the Gospels, you read of Jesus' ascension, right? So we read in Acts chapter 1, you know, Jesus kind of hung out with the guys for a number of days, and on Pentecost, Jesus, right, 40 days, Jesus is then going to go up to heaven. I picture Revelation 5 as heaven's view of the ascension. So Jesus has been crucified, right? The lamb is sacrificed lamb. The lamb is now rising into the throne room, having accomplished his mission. Now the lamb comes into the control tower, and what does he do? He approaches the throne, and he says, now that my mission is complete, I will unroll the plan. And so this is heaven's side look at the ascension of Jesus. And we see beginning in chapter 6, the seals are going to be broken and the scroll unrolled. Then we're going to see the trumpets are going to sound. Then the bowls are going to be poured out. And by the time you get to the end, in 19, 20, and 21, 22, victory, vindication, redemption, and perfect justice 
secured forever. I read one commentator who said, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are the center and the centering chapters of the book. I think that's exactly right. Now, it's not the center of the book, right? Revelation is 22 chapters. This is chapter 11. It's the center, though. This is, this is the middle. This is where it all comes from. Everything else flows from 4 and 5, right? That vision begins all of the rest of the story. It's the center, and it's centering. But you know what? It's not only centering for the book. It needs to be centering for our lives. Jesus ushers in the victory. What, what did the church need that was being persecuted and experiencing difficulty, looking around, seeing their friends being taken advantage of, persecuted financially and physically? What did they need? They needed to see chapters 4 and 5. That's Jesus gives them the vision. of What do we need as we live? We need the picture of 4 and 5. And so maybe we need to make it a regular habit to go back and read the center, centering chapters of Revelation 4 and 5, and don't get lost in the details. Don't get lost in the trees and miss the forest. The forest goes like this. It may look like chaos from our side, but from heaven's side, it's all choreographed. There's a throne this morning. Even though all this junk in the world's gone, there's a throne this morning, and that throne is occupied. And all of God's promises for justice, mercy, and grace will be fulfilled because the lion who is the lamb won the victory on a hill called Calvary. And now it's just a mopping up between now and the end. But make no mistake, that victory guarantees the ultimate victory. That's what Revelation 5 is saying. The ultimate victory we look back on. We're just living kind of in the already not yet tension, waiting for the finishing line. Do you ever watch a ball game? Maybe an Eagles game, Phillies game. And unlike some of you who hate this, I like to, I like to know if they won before I watch the, watch the replay. I like to know. I don't want to sit there in anxiety and fear, right? You know what the Bible tells you? We already know the final score. We may not know all the details. We may not know who's going to get hurt and what's going to happen in the second, third, and fourth quarter, but we do know the final score. If you know the final score, you don't have to watch with anxiety, discouragement, fear. You watch with confidence. Yeah, there are breakneck turns, and you say, I wouldn't do it that way. Yeah, that's right. You're not gone. There's a throne, it's occupied. Victory's guaranteed, and it's being unrolled, not only starting in chapter 6, it's being unrolled today, just on schedule. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these two chapters and this book. We confess that there's a lot of stuff that we don't understand and a whole bunch of stuff that we don't agree with each other on. But Lord, thanks that the main points are crystal clear. The main points are, Lord, that you're in control. The main points are things are happening according to plan. And the main point is that our main purpose in life is to worship you and submit before you because that's wisdom, that's salvation, that's redemption, that's partnership with you. So Lord, as we live life, help us to 
punctuate our lives with things that remind us that the ultimate event of the universe today and forever is worship. Help us to get in step with that today and truly worship you, making you our ultimate priority, casting our crowns before you, whatever that means today and this week. We pray in the name of Jesus, the lion and the lamb. Amen.